This is the 2015 Ontario Winter Bible School. Our speaker for this session is our brother Mark O'Grady from Tawa, New Zealand. His theme this week is One in Christ Jesus, Complementary Roles. This is his sixth class, and the subject for this class is The Beauty of the Bride. Our reading was taken from Genesis chapter 24, from verses 57 to 66. Brother Mark. Brother Luke, and good morning, brothers and sisters. Well, if we wanted to, to find the most emotional or powerful way of describing our waiting as a community for the return of our Lord from heaven, you couldn't think of a better topic to choose than the theme of an engagement. Long awaited, eagerly anticipated, much preparation, and the day finally arrives. The bridegroom arrives, the bride then turns up, she presented to the groom, mum sheds a few tears, they exchange vows, and they're joined together in holy matrimony. And of course, it's the most romantic scene which we get in this, in this life. And since the foundation of the world, that's the theme or the symbol that the Father has used to depict the joining together of the faithful with his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, when the earth is filled with his glory. So on that basis, we might expect to find this theme rather prominent throughout the divine record, and, and so it is indeed. It permeates the record right from the very first chapter of the Bible right to the last chapter of the Bible. So we find, for example, the parable of the five, five wise and five foolish virgins, and there's a theme of a bridegroom and entering into the, into the marriage. In Revelation 19, there's a blessing pronounced upon those who are the bride who have made themselves ready and those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Psalm 19, there's a prophecy of the return of Christ, which is described as being a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. We have the impassioned words of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian Ecclesia when he said that he, he wished to present them as a chaste virgin to Christ. So it's a very powerful analogy, and it comes up many times throughout the divine record. So in that context, we're going to spend some time this morning looking at the theme of the calling of the bride and her response. And we're going to do so by focusing on one particular passage in Scripture. Because one of the most instructive examples in Scripture of the calling of the bride for the promised son is the calling of Rebekah for Isaac in the chapter that we've just read together. Now Genesis 24 is one of those truly delightful sections of Scripture. Simultaneously, it's the call of the bride for the promised seed, Isaac. It establishes principles that need to be there in any husband and wife relationship when boy meets girl and they join together in marriage. But also, more particularly, as we'll see this morning, like all of the life of Isaac, it's an allegory. And Isaac, as the promised seed, becomes a representation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the calling of the bride for Isaac is like the calling of the bride for the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's go to Genesis 24 and pick up the record there at the beginning of the chapter. And we find that the opening verse sets the scene very well. Abraham was old and well stricken in age. Yahweh had blessed Abraham in all things. So it tells us that Abraham now is running out of time. And the question of the promised seed was never far from his mind. He's been given the son, Isaac, but Isaac's unmarried. So how do you have a seed become like the stars of heaven for multitude when there's no grandchildren? There was no beginning of the process of that seed. Now when you stop and think about it, that's a fairly important issue if you were Abraham who was growing old. So now the matter has become exceedingly urgent. Because of course if something happened to Abraham, it would now be up to his head steward or his, his head servant to arrange the wife for his son. So now he takes his steward and he brings his steward into his confidence immediately. And so right from these opening verses, we, it sort of infuses a sense of urgency across the chapter. We're running out of time. Something needs to be done urgently to rectify the situation. It's urgent. It's important. And now he faces a dilemma. And the dilemma is, who? It's the same question which is faced by anybody when seeking a partner. Who? Where from? What attributes? And how do you meet him or her? Now, of course, the first thing that Abraham does is he looks around him and he sees all the Canaanite nations and he says, they are revolting. 
I don't want one of those people to be the wife for my son. I guess it's like us. We don't go downtown at 10.30 on Friday night to try and find a suitable partner to join with us together in Christ. That's not where a God-honouring partner is going to be found. So the question is, where can I go? Where can you find people that believe in God? Because if you can find a place where there are people who believe in God, that's where I'm going to turn to find the partner for my son Isaac. And the answer was yes. He did know of some people. These people too had left Ur of the Chaldees. They too believed in the existence of God. Now there's an interesting little phrase that comes up in, uh, in verse 27, which shows us where to look for a suitable partner. At the end of verse 27, he said, I have been led to the house of my master's brethren. And isn't that a wonderful description, brothers and sisters, of where a suitable partner is to be found? In the house of my master's brethren. Isn't it appropriate that our community has a name, Christadelphian, which means the brothers or the brethren of Christ? Because a suitable partner is always to be found in the house of my master's brethren. So he calls his oldest servant. He instructs him to go and to take a wife for his son from his own country and kindred. Now, not surprisingly, his poor old servant is a bit taken aback by this. This is quite an ask. So he says, well, if I can find such a person, assuming such a person exists, what happens if she doesn't want to follow me back to you and to Isaac. Should I take Isaac back across there to meet her? And you can feel the strength of conviction in the old man's voice. In verse 9, there's some vehement, uh, verse 6, he says quite vehemently, Beware, thou that thou bring not my son thither again. But in verse 8, if for some reason it's not God's plan, and she won't follow you, then you're clear from my oath. But, and here he repeats it again in verse 9, Bring not my son thither again. So Abraham's saying, God took me from there. He promised me this land. We have begun a family life of sojourning in the promised land. And I do not want my son to be distracted from this life that we're committed to as a family of sojourning in the present land. And there's, a very, there's a very powerful and rather fundamental principle riding along below the surface of the story. Abraham says, I was called out of that. We've espoused a life of sojourning. And I need a partner for my son who's prepared to take on our family faith and characteristics of being sojourners, waiting for the inheritance of the promised land. And if you can't find the right person, still don't take my son back there again. So we find that in the story now, there's going to be a very strong implicit challenge for this young woman will you leave that way of life home and family and embrace our life of sojourning and it's a theme which starts to emerge quite strongly as the chapter progresses we're going to see that a little later so Abraham sends out his servant to go and call the bride well in that context of an allegory who does the servant represent? Who is sent to call the bride? Now notice carefully how he's described in the record as being the, the eldest servant. The assumption we make often is that it's Eliezer, but we have to be frank, the record doesn't actually say that. So it may be the case, but it's not stated. Much of the record is about the role of this servant. He's the servant who in verse 2 rules over all that Abraham has. And therefore he is the chief steward of Abraham. And responsibility for all of Abraham's household has been placed in the hands of this steward. And note, by the way, the way the record emphasizes his role. In verse 2, it says he ruled over all that he had. In verse 10, it says that all of the goods of the master were in the hand of this steward. Now, this, this man is rather interesting character to reflect upon as we look at his behavior throughout the chapter. He's got a depth of appreciation of the hand of God working in his life and in the events that he's experiencing. We find a man who is very quick to pray, and he's also instant in worship. He openly thanks and praises God, and he's happy to acknowledge 
that debt of gratitude to God publicly in front of all people. He doesn't hide it. And then he's happy to talk to other people about the hand of God as well. He saw the hand of providence. Because as the young lady met the criteria, it says he wondered whether Yahweh had prospered his journey. And so he's working together with the Father. He sees the hand of providence in what's happening in front of him. And he's very quick to speak of that hand of providence in discussion with the family of Rebecca. So what is this man actually doing? Well, he's, he's coming with a mission, isn't he? In fact, he's under oath to his master to fulfill that mission. So he carries responsibility to the master of the household, not only for all the goods of the master, but also he carries a personal responsibility for this additional charge. To journey, to seek out the bride for his son. So he travels and he goes to a likely spot where you might meet such people. And he stops there. It's a conspicuous spot. It's a suitable time of the day when he's most likely to meet potentially suitable candidates. He also knows the sort of person that he should find. And then he works together with God to see if they will appear. Now, when they do appear, he's very quick to speak to them. And he tells them all about his master. He tells them about his master's son. He speaks of the blessing of God upon their household. He explains where they live and no doubt about their family background. He shows them great riches and extends marvellous marvellous gifts to them, gifts of, of great value, as we see from the record. And he acts as an ambassador for his master. We find that the effect of the words of this man is exceedingly powerful. The young woman says, I am willing. And she voluntarily leaves her family and her friends, and she travels off to the new promised land to meet her prospective husband. And they must have been extremely powerful and persuasive words to persuade this young lady to embrace such a new life and make those life decisions. So who does this chief steward represent? Who has the responsibility today to carry the good message, to encourage people to leave home and family and follow Christ, to leave the things of this life behind and follow the Lord Jesus Christ? And we say, hey, that's our role. That's a magnificent role and a magnificent depiction of our role as we invite others to become part of the Bride of Christ. And note, by the way, that when the steward persuades her to leave her home and family and journey to meet her promised, her promised husband, he also travels with her. He doesn't abandon her on this process. In fact, he provides the transport for her. He travels together with her, with the whole company. And that's our role as saints. So the camel train, as it returns with the bride, is a depiction of the ecclesia. But you never thought of your ecclesia as being a camel train before. But what we find is this servant is not a lone ranger. He's not traveling alone. He's traveling as part of a whole community. Like verse 54, he and the men that were with him. So we actually have a whole community that's on the move, searching for this bride. Remember the words of the Lord? Luke chapter 12 and verse 42. The Lord said, who then is a faithful and wise steward? Whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season. Blessed is that servant who his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. So this steward is, a, is an allegory of the steward the Lord Jesus Christ is referring to in Luke chapter 12. Those who have responsibility to look after the household of faith. There are a couple of other passages you may want to note too. Um, Paul, particularly of himself, says it's required of stewards that a man be found faithful. In 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 1 and 2. And in 1 Peter 4 verse 10, it's particularly in the context of the Holy Spirit gifts. In that occasion, even so minister the same to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So he finds that this theme of being stewards is a theme that's linked to our responsibility today in the household of God. Now, at this point, it's probably worth pausing to make sure that we've got all the bits of the allegory working together and, and so that we understand the richness of what's being conveyed by this whole story. 
Isaac, of course, we know is a type of the promised seed that was to come. The one, as the passage says, in whom thy seed will be called. Then we look at Abraham and we see in Abraham an exemplification of the father. The one who was prepared to give up and sacrifice his only begotten son. Ultimately, as God did for the redemption of the human race. But who will be provided as the bride for the promised seed? Who will be chosen? And how will she be called? And that's the beauty of the story here in Genesis chapter 24. This is the calling of the bride of Christ. It's an invitation for her to leave her father's house and to embark on her own personal journey of faith. She's traveling to meet a man she's never seen, whose voice she's never heard, and whose touch she has never felt. But not only is this chapter a record of her call, it also describes her journey to meet her Lord and ultimately the meeting of the two of them together at the end of the passage. So what does it mean? Well, it means, brothers and sisters, that this particular chapter is our calling and it's our journey. And therefore, all the little details that we find in this chapter, they just gently embellish our appreciation of our calling and our preparation for the, meet, for the meeting of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they do also test our responsiveness. It examines all the little challenges and, and the, little, the little hurdles that might prevent us from responding to the gospel call. And then it travels the path of the journey from the response of the call to the embarking on the journey, and it climaxes at the end with the marriage itself as the bride-to-be meets her prospective husband in the well in the fields of the well of the covenant. And then we stop and we think about this theme and we say, ah, this is also the journey of the Queen of Sheba with her entourage of camels to meet King Solomon. This is the journey of Ruth when she goes from a strange land and she goes to a new land and makes it her own and then ultimately joins together with Boaz. This is the marriage of Psalm 45 with the bride who, as it says, forgets her father's people, sorry, her own people and her father's house. This is the marriage of the bride and the groom that's immortalized in the Song of Solomon. This is the presenting of Eve to Adam after her creation from his side. This is the marriage of the Lamb described in Revelation 19, where the bride's made herself ready. This is the presentation of Esther before King Ahasuerus. This is the role of John the Baptist as the friend of the bridegroom bringing the bride to Christ. This is the role of Paul representing, as he presents the ecclesia, as the chaste virgin of Christ. This is a theme that just permeates the whole breadth of the divine record. That's the importance of the calling of the bride for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, rather sadly, we don't have time to look through all the magnificent details of chapter 24 this morning. It's actually an enormous chapter, and there's a huge amount of content there. We, we know, for example, that after Eliezer finished his prayer, no sooner had he opened his eyes than he suddenly saw this damsel sitting there in front of him. And it's an extraordinary powerful example of the working of providence. But to really appreciate the, the, the power of what's happening here and is being conveyed by the story, we need to, as it were, leave our position as observers for a moment and climb down inside the story and, and become this young woman, Rebecca, as she hears this call. <clears throat> and in so doing, we're going to come to appreciate a little more the spirit and demeanour of the bride whom Yahweh is seeking. So Rebecca is described to us as being young, innocent, and pure. In verse 17, when she comes out to the well, she's suddenly accosted by a total stranger. He's, he's obviously a man of some considerable wealth and importance. He has ten camels, a whole camel train with him, and a group of men. Now this, this young lady is obviously very generous, and she's spontaneously uh, happy to help out this, this man. She's very industrious. She's happy to provide refreshing water to the man who asks, but then she voluntarily offers to provide water for his camel and for the servants that are with him. So she's caring, and she's prepared to put a lot of effort in to help other people. Reminds us a little, doesn't it, of the, of the demeanour of the woman in Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman. 
Then after she's finished watering all of his camels, he then asks who she is, and she explains that she's the daughter of Bethuel. And he also asks her whether they have room for him and his people to lodge. Now immediately her generous spirit surfaces again. She explains she's the daughter of Bethuel, and yes, they have straw and provender enough for them to be able to come and stay at their place. Now at this point in the story, things start becoming a, a rather unusual as far as Rebecca's concerned. In fact, it's verse 47 that gives us the, the exact order of events. Because no sooner does she explain who her family is, than this visiting stranger suddenly opens his bag and he pulls out some extraordinarily valuable gold and jewellery. And then he reaches over and personally fastens it on her. Now, I suspect that's a rather unusual way for people to greet somebody else beside the well. Now, where it talks about an earring, it should rather be rendered a head jewel, which can mean either a nose ring or a headpiece for the forehead. But the weight and the value of these golden items is extraordinary. In today's terms alone, the gold would be worth thousands of dollars for each piece. And then this unusual man bursts out in prayer. There's a short ex ex exclamation of praise. And he says, Blessed be Yahweh, God of my master Abraham, who's not left destitute my master of his mercy and truth. I've been led in the way to the house of my master's brother. Now you can imagine her amazement as she's listening to these words. Who is this man? Why is he offering her this golden jewellery of such immense value? And she's also amazed by his words. What did he say? He mentioned God. Then he talked about Abraham and then his master's brethren. Is this a distant family member which we have there? Now, if you were her, what would be your logical reaction at this point in time? I've got to go and tell mum about this. And so she gathers up her, her, her robes and she rushes back to go and tell her family. Everything is done with speed. She drops everything. She runs back into the city. She's completely amazed by what she's just seen and heard. She's now been given something of great value and she hastens to go and tell her family all about what's just been happening to her. This is the bride of Christ when she hears about the truth. Think about it in the context of the allegory of the bride of Christ. As a new constituent, someone that's just been invited, she's amazed by the value of what's just been offered to her. The wealth of the ornament displayed, the pearl of great price, the exceeding great and precious promises, as they're referred to in 2 Peter 1 and verse 4. Now, isn't that the enthusiastic reaction of all members of the Bride of Christ when they hear the beauty of the gospel for the first time and they start to realise how precious it is? She's so thrilled to hear of these wonderful things that she can't wait to go and share it with her family, to go and tell those she's close to about this wonderful uh, communication she's had from this man that's been speaking to her. So in verse 28, she runs to tell her mother's house of all these things. Now, Rebecca's story and the evidence of the jewellery that she's carrying is quite a powerful combination. So Laban, her brother, sees the golden jewels, he hears her words, and so he then hastens out to visit this man, and he says, well, bring him in. Come on in. Come and stay at our place. So they do. Then, in true Middle Eastern way, they extend hospitality, so they all gather together for a meal, but the steward refuses to speak until he's had the opportunity to describe his mission. And so he tells his remarkable story. It's a spine-tingling story. It's such a powerful illustration of the hand of God involved, unmistakable and irresistible in its force. So much so that her family just says in verses 50 to 51, it proceedeth from Yahweh. We can't resist it. It's just too irresistible and overwhelming. Take her, we agree. They're utterly overwhelmed by the fact that when God determines something, nobody can gainsay it. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could exude that conviction every time we speak about the truth to people around us? With a conviction which is so powerful 
and overwhelming that it became just an irresistible force. If we could just convey the richness of the hand of God upon us and the indescribable worth of what's been extended to us, if we could just describe it in such a passionate way that everybody that listened would say, this is clearly of God's doing, it's the will of God. But just think about Rebecca. She's sitting there in the background as all of this conversation is going on as they sit around this meal. And you can imagine her thoughts, tumultuous thoughts that would have been rushing through her breast as she hears the servant describe his prayer to Yahweh. I'm waiting for a young woman to come out and say this and this and this. And a thrill of recognition would course through her veins. That's, that's exactly what I said. Those are exactly the words I used when I came out and spoke to him. What's, what's happening here? I'm part of a scene that God is in complete control of. This is God's hand, direct in my own personal life. I came along, I said those exact words, exactly as he'd said in his, pra- in his prayer to God. This is of God. I'm a woman of destiny. I've been chosen by Almighty God. I've been called. And that's the message that we need to convey to the heart of those that we're teaching the truth to. That God has personally got involved in their lives. That they have been personally extended an invitation by the Almighty himself. It is a personal invitation that we convey to others. Now this young woman thought long and hard about those words. All that night she would have thought about it. She understood the implication of that call. And she accepted it. Like Mary, who said, behold, the handmaid of the Lord. Now, the next morning, the servant wants to depart. He said, I want to be off. My mission's accomplished. There's urgency. I need to be off. My master's son is sitting back there waiting for me. And the family says, whoa, not so fast. Don't respond to the gospel call that fast. Don't rock the family boat. No, no, we've got a nice little circle here. It's all very well in concept, but do not leave the family circle so fast. Let's leave it. Maybe 10 days, maybe a little bit longer, they say. And the servant says, no. I've got a mission. We need to go. You see, when there's a response to the call, it needs to be wholehearted, not delayed. So the family's in a dilemma. They say, well, uh, okay, why don't we go and ask the damsel herself? And so they call her in, and they ask her, will you go with this man? And the simple, profound answer comes back, I will go. Now, when we stop and think about the spirit of this young woman, we think, hey, that's interesting. This is no more and no less than the spirit of Abraham, the father of the faithful himself. Remember the astounding way he was prepared to leave his home and his extended family and country, and they were prepared to travel to a promised land simply because he had confidence in the person who invited him to do so, and he did it. Hebrews 11 verse 8, by faith Abram, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out not knowing whither he went. So we find with the story of Rebecca, we have the story of a young woman who's prepared to actually do exactly the same thing. She undertakes exactly the same journey. She leaves the same country that he had left. She journeys to the same country that he had gone to, the promised land. And so now we find the essence of the faith of Abraham is now replicated in the journey of the bride. It's a characteristic of the bride of all ages. She's prepared to follow the same journey as Abraham. If we go to Genesis 24, we can actually pick up this, this gentle underlying emphasis as it develops through the record. So in verse 4, for example, it says, Go to my kindred and take a wife unto my son Isaac. Verse 5, but what happens if she's not willing to follow me? Has the idea literally of to walk behind me. Then again in verse 7, go and take a wife. Verse 8, but if the woman be not willing to follow. Verse 38, when Elias is telling the story, Take a wife, verse 39, not willing to follow me. Verse 51, the family says, take her and go. Verse 57, they say, call her. 
and ask her. And in verse 58, we have the definitive statement of this chapter. Ringing conviction, a personal decision. I will go. It becomes one of the themes that underlines this particular chapter. Here is a young lady who was willing and able to undertake this journey off into the unknown with a man she'd never met previously, to marry a man she has never seen, and to live in a land that she did not know. Surely, brothers and sisters, that is the spirit of Abraham in the bride. It's actually the spirit demonstrated by every member of the household of Christ when they're baptised, when they set off on their own personal journey to Christ. We won't turn it up, but in Psalm 45, the importance of this, this spirit on the part of the bride is made abundantly clear. I'll just read out to you from verses 10 and 11 of Psalm 45. Hearken, O daughter, consider, incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy lord. Worship thou him. It's rather a glorious theme as we see it just tracking through scripture. All right, now at this point, we're going to broaden our perspective a little on this particular record. We're going to come back later and resume the journey with Rebecca as she journeys to meet Isaac. But let's just pause, as it were, for a moment. And I want us to consider the, the wider theme of the calling of the bride, <clears throat> and particularly in association with the idea of the well where she was called from. <clears throat> and we're going to throw, follow some interesting threads through scripture and the association of the idea of the bride and of the well also. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> okay. Well, let's start with a question. <clears throat> where exactly did Abraham's servant meet Rebecca and extend to her the calling to become the prospective wife for Isaac? Answer is, at the well. <clears throat> Where did Jacob meet Rachel, his future wife? Hmm, at the well. Actually, exactly the same well. Where did Moses meet Zipporah? At the well, with the seven daughters of Jethro. Where did Christ meet the woman of Samaria and extend to her the invitation to become part of the Gentile bride at a well. If we extend the theme a little further, where did Paul meet Lydia and extend the invitation to the gospel beside the rivers of water? And we say at this point, that's too great a, too great a thing to be, to be a coincidence. Now, <clears throat> let's just pick up this concept here from Jeremiah 2 verse 13. See the way in which Yahweh has defined himself? Yahweh is the fountain of living waters. In Jeremiah 2 and Jeremiah 17, Israel were rebuked because they had forsaken Yahweh, who was the fountain of living waters. So we have, brothers and sisters, altogether two greater coincidences linking together the calling of the bride and the theme of these wells, the well of life. And actually, in every one of those examples we mentioned, they're either linked with the covenant of marriage or the covenant of calling somebody to become part of the bride of Christ. That's where the bride is to be found. She's associated with the well. She's associated with the fountain of living waters. It's a defining feature of those who are called to become part of the bride of Christ. And there's a lesson for us in that, brothers and sisters. The bride is to be found in association with those life-giving waters. That's where our community gathers, isn't it? In fact, that's the focal point of our community, where those life-giving waters, life-sustaining waters, are to be found. It's a very powerful lesson for us. If we want to be part of the Bride of Christ, we need to be found in association with those wells of life-giving water. We don't wander off into isolation in the desert, away from the fountains of water, closely associated with the well. It's interesting, as we start then to explore through scripture the theme of the bride and the well, we find that she's not only associated with the water, 
the bride then starts to become a well of water in her own right. Now to begin with, we find, for example, in the book of Proverbs, that it's associated with the sanctity of marriage. Proverbs 5, verses 15 to 20, Drink waters of thine own cistern, and running waters of thine own well. And so there's a question there of the integrity of the marriage relationship. Whose well is it? Who has, who has the right to drink of the water of that well? Who does she belong to? Who is she associated with? But then as the theme continues on through scripture, we find that the bride and the community of the faithful then becomes ultimately a source of life-giving water for others. That, for example, is the principle which the Lord Jesus Christ elaborated in John chapter 7. He that believeth on me, he says, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. In fact, we know that in Revelation 21, that we read it, what was it, yesterday? The bride's described as being a city coming down from God, from God out of heaven. And then in Revelation chapter 22, there is a stream or river of the water of life which flows from the bride, a stream of living waters. Now, question for you. What is the last action of the bride in Scripture? Does anybody know? The very last action of the bride in Scripture. Sorry? Any ideas? Ah, brilliant. Let's go to Revelation 22. Excellent. Thank you, Brother Paul. The very, in fact, it's in the last five verses of the divine record. We're told what this bride does. Verse 17 of Revelation 22. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that heareth say, come. Let him that is a thirst, Come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. The very last action of the bride described in the scriptures, brothers and sisters, is extending an invitation to all who would hear to come and participate, to come and drink of the water of life which is provided freely. Those are the attributes that God is looking for in the bride. She's characterized by her association with the life-giving waters of the well, and she's keen to extend the invitation to others that they might come and share the blessing that she has. That's actually what Rebecca did at the well as well. Actually, the stories of those remarkable women at the well that we went through are quite extraordinary. They, they teach us some very powerful lessons and particularly in context of our studies this week, they give us some very illustrative lessons about the respective roles of men and women. As I ran through that particular list of women associated with the wells, did you notice a remarkable thread which just runs through those stories in the background? It's a message about the complementary roles of men and women scripturally. A notable feature in each case is that they needed a man to assist them. Rachel needed Jacob's help to roll away the stone so that she could obtain water. Zipporah. Well, the evil shepherds drove Zipporah and her sisters away till Moses stood up and he drove the evil shepherds off so that they could obtain water. With Rebekah, she needed the servant to come and invite her to go to become part of of the bride. Christ, well, he needed to help the woman of Samaria realize that actually what she needed was water, which if you drank, you would never thirst again. And Paul showed Lydia the way of salvation. So in every single one of those records, we have men who preserve, who assist, who enable, who extend an invitation. They remove a stone that's blocking the well, they chase off the oppressive shepherds who are denying water. And we find that all the way through, these men are able to enable the woman who's there at the well. But that's only half the story. Because then, remarkably, in every one of those cases, the woman 
and or her family then extend nourishment and support to a man in need. Just think about it. Rebecca, she provides water to Eliezer and his camels. Rachel, well, she runs to get her family to prepare a place for Jacob, who at that stage was a fugitive. Zipporah, well, her household extended hospitality to Moses in his time of need. The woman of Samaria was asked by Christ to provide her with refreshing water. And Lydia took Paul into her own house to feed and to shelter him. Men in need, supported by those women. What a glorious combination of roles we have here in the story of these women and the well. It's a wonderful biblical illustration of the respective roles of men and women as they are scripturally defined. And it's all predicated here upon the theme of the well and the calling of the bride. But our theme of wells and brides not yet exhausted because we find that the theme of Rebecca and a well, the joining together of this theme of Rebecca and the wells, is not exhausted here in Genesis chapter 24. It comes up again in a rather more enigmatic passage in Scripture in Genesis chapter 26. I'd ask you to come with me through to Genesis chapter 26, where we have a, a succession of apparently unrelated incidents which then turn out to all be linked together. We have the sojourning of Isaac and Rebekah and his household in the area of the, uh, of the Philistines. Firstly, earlier in the chapter, we have the incident of Rebekah and Abimelech's household, where Isaac puts her at great risk by effectively denying that she is his wife. So what's the issue that underlies that part of the story? The question is, whose wife is she. Then later in the chapter, we find that there is repeated violence over the question of the ownership of wells. And Isaac's driven away from a succession of wells that had previously been dug by his father. What's the question at stake? Whose wells are they? Then we find that these two themes of the well and, and the wife... Sorry, we find, sorry, as, as, should I go back and say, these, this chapter puts these two themes in juxtaposition as we go through the record. Isaac and his wife, and Isaac and his wells. Then, when we get to the end of the chapter, there's a covenant that's then made with those Gentile rulers. But even the covenant that's made with the Gentile rulers is in connection with one of those wells. And we're going to go to the end of the chapter now and just look at, at a few of the features of the story about this covenant that is made in association with these wells. So in Genesis 26 and verse 20, sorry, Genesis 26 and verse 26, Abimelech goes to him from Gerar. And accuser, one of his friends, and Phicol, the chief captain of his army. They come to Isaac, he says, well, what are you doing here? I thought you hated me. And they say, well, we've seen that Yahweh's been with you, so we want to make an oath or a covenant in verse 28 between you and us, a covenant of peace. Now, the record starts in verse 25, where it says that when Isaac arrived, his servants digged a well. And that then parks the theme until after the covenant is completed. So we find that they make an oath. He makes them a feast in verse 30. Verse 31, they rise up between, between times and they swear one to another and then he sends them away. And as, they, as they've departed, the same day, it says in verse 32, Isaac's servants come and tell him about the well they've been digging and they say, we've found water. So he calls it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba unto this day. Right, well, let's just pull a few features out of this record. In verse 31, it says that they swear an oath. To swear the oath, the word swear there, is the word Sheba. That's why later it's called Beersheba, the well of Sheba. Now, the word Sheba is an interesting one. It comes from Sheba. The verb means to swear or to make an oath. Sheba, the noun, means to, an oath, or it's also exactly the same word which is used in Hebrew for the number seven. So the theological word book makes the comment that to swear an oath is sometimes referred to as to seven one's self. So when we have beer, sheba, beer equals well, sheba is the oath. 
So it's named the well of the sevenfold oath because of the covenant which they have sworn to each other at this particular time. But did you know that this is not the first time that that well's been dug? This is not the first time the place has been called Beersheba. I'd like you to come back with me to Genesis chapter 21. Because remarkably, this incident from Genesis 26, with Isaac and Rebekah and Abimelech and the wells and the covenant, is just a mirror image of an earlier incident at exactly the same place with the same Gentile nation and rulers. It's quite remarkable to see the parallel between these two records. But this time, at the end of chapter 20, it was Abraham who had denied his wife. It was Abraham in chapter 21 who had his wells violently taken away. It was Sarah in that record who's associated with the story of the wells. Now once again we find there's a covenant entered into with men who even carry exactly the same title. Abimelech and Phicol. There's another covenant entered into with these Philistine rulers. Once again, there is a well associated with that covenant, and the well is then named the place of Beersheba. But this time, there's one additional feature in the record which I'd like us to note. You know, it's one of those incidental little features which just get thrown into the divine record. The one we stop and have a look at them, we find contains a lot of richness. And what it's going to do for us is introduce another dimension to the theme of the bride and the wells, the multitudinous bride and the wells. And it's going to, to enrich the theme of the bride by introducing another new little symbol. It's actually a symbol which is very closely associated with the bride, but it does introduce some new lessons about who really owns the well and who really is the supplier of the fountain of living waters, and it's a theme about witnessing. So it's very appropriate for us as the Bride of Christ. Okay, whilst these two records, Genesis 21, Abraham, Genesis 26, Isaac, are extremely similar, there are some notable differences in the record. The latter one, in Genesis 26, is a covenant between the Gentiles... And Isaac, who is the son. In fact, the record makes that quite obvious. The earlier covenant in Genesis 21 is a covenant with Abraham, who is the father. Remember what his name means? The father of a multitude. So in scripture, we find that Abraham as the father is often used as a symbol of God himself. Remember that? The one who was prepared to sacrifice his son. What this means, brothers and sisters, is that in Genesis 21, we have this record from the father's perspective. And we find in the record as we go through it that it stresses Abraham saying, for example, let's have a look at verse 30 of Genesis 21 and verse 30. He said, you shall take these seven new lambs of my hand that they may be a witness to me that I have digged the well. So in Genesis 21, when there's a conflict over this well and he makes the covenant with this Gentile nation... He stresses the fact that it was his well because he had dug it. Now, of course, later in chapter 26, that can't be said by Isaac because it was his father that provided that well. In fact, what Genesis 26 does over and over again is emphasize the fact that he's redigging his father's well. In fact, it even says he called them by the same name that his fathers had called them. The right of ownership, based on being the original creator of the well belongs particularly to Abraham. It's something which he alone can assert, as he does in chapter 21. So in Genesis 21, when the covenant is made, the issue which is at stake is this. Abraham, as the father, says, I dug that well. It's mine. Now what does Abraham use as a witness to the fact that he had provided that well of water? Well, let's read, pick up the record in Genesis 21 and verse 27. Well, first of all, verse 25 for context. Abraham reproved Abimelech because of the well of water, which Abimelech's servants had violently taken away. Then verse 27, Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and both of them make a covenant. 
Verse 28, Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. And Abimelech said unto Abraham, What mean these seven ewe lambs which thou hast set by themselves? And he said, For these seven ewe lambs shalt thou take of my hand, that they may be a witness unto me, that I have dug the well. So here are seven ewe lambs which are described as being of the flock, but in verse 28 it says that they were put aside. In fact, we're told very conspicuously in verse 28 and 29 that they had been set aside. So much so that the Gentile king says, What are those seven ewe lambs that you've put aside? And Abraham says to him, Ah, I want you to take those seven ewe lambs of my hand. It's as if he's holding these seven ewe lambs in his hand. He said, I want you to take those seven ewe lambs from my hand. They are my witnesses. They're proof that this well has been created by my hand. The life-giving supplies of water are something that I created. I dug them. I supplied them. And note in verse 30, he says, these lambs are in my hand. Why seven ewe lambs? Well, I guess that's appropriate, isn't it? Seven is the number Sheba. They've just made sworn a covenant here. The place is now going to be called Beersheba. So the number of seven, the number of the oath. But the question for us this morning is, who are the seven ewe lambs that God has separated to be a witness to the fact that he provides the fountain of living waters? Who are the seven ewe lambs that are separated and held in his hand as his witness to the Gentiles that the water well is his? Who are the seven ewe lambs who are associated with the covenant of the sevenfold oath? Well, it's another beautiful symbol of the bride. It's the role of the community of the faithful down through the centuries to be God's witness to the fact that he owns the fountain of living water. He dug it. He has provided that fountain, and it's their task to witness to the Gentiles the fact that the life-giving sources of water have come from God himself. These seven little ewe lambs, the lambs of the covenant, are set aside in God's hand as his witness to all who would see. Now, is that a scriptural theme, or are we pushing it too far? Well, think about this. These are the seven daughters of Jethro, who Moses met at the well. Moses stood up to protect them and drove away the evil shepherds. These are the seven women of Isaiah 4, verse 1, who take hold of the garment of one man, pleading to be called by his name to take away their reproach. These seven ewe lambs taken from the hand of Abraham are the seven stars, held in the right hand of the man of the one in the vision of Revelation chapter 1. They are the seven lampstands of the apocalypse, Revelation 1 and 2. They're the seven spirits of God, symbolically sent forth into all the earth. It's a representation of God's agents. They work in the earth as his witnesses to his work of calling people to submit to his glorious name. They are the people of the covenant. And those seven little ewe lambs, are a symbol of that, of that community, the female bride. As far as God's concerned, every member of that community is like a little ewe lamb. Innocent, gentle, harmless, vulnerable, but a powerful witness to the fact that the fountain of living waters is provided by Yahweh himself. They are God's witness. Now one of the interesting things about little ewe lambs is that they're very vulnerable Tragically, little ewe lambs can be compromised and they need protecting. Now, there's not many places in Scripture where the theme of a little ewe lamb comes up. One of those places, and we won't turn it up, is found in the book of Samuel. One of the most heartbreaking records in Scripture is the parable that Nathan the prophet told about David. He told the parable to David after he had committed adultery with Uriah's wife and then murdered Uriah. Now in that parable, Nathan depicted Uriah as being a poor man who nourished all his love and his attention and his affection on his wife, who was then violently taken away from him. What symbol was used in that parable, brothers and sisters? A little ewe lamb. 
Why? What story was it drawing on? Well, it was a conflict over who his wife belonged to. Whose wife was she? Whose well of water was she? There had been a violent taking away of something that belonged to Uriah. Can you feel the pathos in that divine symbol that was used by Nathan? The symbol of the little ewe lamb. It's a symbolic statement of the well of the covenant. Beersheba. She belonged to Uriah. She's my witness. She belongs to me. Do you know what the name of that little ewe lamb was? Bath Sheba, the daughter of the sevenfold oath. Can you feel the power, brothers and sisters, of those little themes as they run through Scripture and the underlying message which is being conveyed by the divine record? And as we see the extraordinary way in which these themes run through Scripture, don't we just marvel at the hand of divine inspiration in the word which we have before us? So as God looks at our little community held in his hand, he sees little ewe lambs, harmless, vulnerable, dependent, but a marvellous witness, a testimony to the fact that the well of life-giving water is supplied by the Father himself. All right, let's go back, brothers and sisters. We've run out of time. Let's go back to Genesis 24 and complete our story. What do we find? Well, they pack up and they now embark on this journey to go and meet Isaac. She travels not by herself, but with her nurse and with damsels that travel with her, plus the men and the camels. A lovely analogy of the ecclesia traveling together over considerable distance towards the promised land to meet her Lord. The long journey passes, the end of the journey draws nigh, and at length, at the end of the chapter, they draw near to the area where Isaac is dwelling. And we read the record there, Genesis chapter 26. Sorry, it's 24, should I say? Genesis 24. It says in verse 63 that Isaac went out into the field to meditate at the eventide. He lifted up his eyes, and behold, the camels were coming. What an appropriate time to meet him. It's the eventide. And he's out in the field meditating. What caliber of man is out in a field meditating at night? A man who is thoughtful, reflection, depth of character, the attributes of a wonderful husband. And we're told in verse 65 that she asks, who is this coming to meet us? It implies that he looked up his eye, at his eyes and he'd seen the camel train approaching and so he hastened to meet them. There's an eagerness there. He hasn't just sat and waited. He's coming to meet them as he sees them draw near. Now when she finds out that this is her prospective bridegroom, what does she do? She takes a veil and covers her face, modesty, and she alights off the camel to meet him on foot, respect and eagerness. And the two of them meet there, and we're told that he loved Rebecca, and she became his wife. Well, brothers and sisters, it is the eventide of our journey. The end of our journey draws nigh. Our Lord is hasting to meet us. He's a man of thoughtfulness of reflection, of true depth of character. In Genesis 24, Rebecca discerned her Lord coming to meet her. Do we? Can you see our Lord hasting to meet us on his way here? As we see the things that are happening in the world around us, brothers and sisters, see the signs that our master is on his way. He's hasting to come and meet together with us. It's almost time for us, as it were, to alight from the camel to meet him on foot because our journey is almost over. I wonder what it will be like when the Lord Jesus Christ meets with the bride. We've never met him before face to face. I wonder what it will be like when we meet together with our Isaac. Now, in conclusion, I'd like us to finish with one simple little verse. It may seem like an unusual verse to finish on. Verse 66. When the journey's finished, there's a little record that says... And the servant told Isaac all things that he had done. What does that convey? Accountability. The journey is finished. And the steward of the house 
gives an account of all that he has done. And soon the time will be here, brothers and sisters, when we meet together with our Lord, and as the stewards of the house, we will be called upon to give account for that journey, to describe all the things that have happened, everything that we've experienced on that journey to call a bride for the promised son. So may it be, brothers and sisters, as we return to our homes and to our ecclesias, that we return strengthened by the glorious beauty of the word, the invitation which has been extended to each one of us. May it be that on that day we will be able to rejoice together with him because the marriage of the Lamb will have come and the, lo- and the wife will have made herself ready.